0: Hi there, this is Cameron Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students with me today, and I have been looking forward to this podcast. Uh, let's do some introductions. Let's start with Cameron. Cameron, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, my name is Cameron Perch. I'm an OMS3 at Rocky Vista from Portland, Oregon. Um, i just excited to do my first podcast, so give me a little bit of a break. <laughs> so,
0: So you have this unique ability.
1: Yes. That Doctor Roundy takes advantage of
0: to synthesize information. I what were oh, you talking oh, yeah. about? <laughs> could it
1: could be every time that he talks to me, I turn red. Apparently,
0: uh, a little bit. <laughs> um, however, uh, so I'm pretty excited about this. But uh, Cameron, I'm not letting you off the hook that easy. I would like you to tell us what you're going into.
1: All right. Well, the plan is to go into orthopedic surgery. Um, eventually, work with athletes and kind of the surrounding the sports realm um and get them back on the field to play
0: all right have you listened to the podcast we did the orthopedic podcast we did orthopedic surgery podcast not quite but i'll get around to it. Uh, if you uh, get off the jack reacher series you might make it there is that what you're telling me <laughs> yes sounds good fun. very very reasonable jeremy
2: yeah so my name is jeremy bergman i'm also a third year medical student i live in st george and i'm currently up here doing rotation with dr thomas who is over at the PEDS unit. It's been a great experience. I am planning on doing internal medicine as of now, probably 90% chance, and then we'll probably end up maybe in cardiology or pulmonology critical care, something like that.
0: Something that keeps you awake at night? Correct. <laughs> I am so glad there are people that are ready to tackle that. And, uh, it, it, <clears throat> You both strike me as having found something that fits very, very good for both the two of you, right? Um, I sure hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, you guys are going to do great at that. Let's uh, talk a little bit about dysthymia. So I'm always intrigued how students pick topics. Tell me how you two chose to do the dysthymia
2: topic. So that's a good question. I think neither of us were very passionate about dysthymia, but it was during one of our lectures when we started talking about depression and one of the topics that came up on the differential was could this be dysthymia and I think both Cameron and I thought what is dysthymia again (laughs) (laughs) we couldn't really remember what it was and we just remember that it's kind of complex and there's a timeline involved and it's like depression and so that's really all we could remember and and I think it was at that point that you know, we decided if we don't really know what it is, maybe it would be worth investigating more.
0: I, I think that's a great idea. Now, I think I was using the the term dysthymia. Correct. And I have mentioned before that I learn a lot with my medical students. How inaccurate, what inaccurately was I using the term
1: dysthymia? Well, um considering it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and, <laughs> the, 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 yeah, it, it doesn't really exist anymore. As, as far as the DSM-5 is, is concerned, it's now consi- It's now termed uh, persistent depressive disorder.
0: Open parenthesis, dysthymia, closed parenthesis. I yeah. just want to point that out. But yeah, they're
1: commonly interchangeable, um, just referred to in literature, depending on the year that, that literature was uh, published. So.
0: so one of the goals I had after doing some of the work on this, and, and I'm going to say this up front, most podcasts, I try to read every article that the students put in the, in the folder, and I try to add at least as many as they do. In this case, that didn't happen, right? So I'm going to be relying on uh, the two of you to lead the podcast. And in addition to that, in the amount of information that I have gone through and the conversations we've had in preparation for the topic, I think one of the things that will affect how I teach students in the future is actually using the right name for the diagnosis. Mm-hmm and I think finally making a transition from DSM four kinds of language to five. And I think we're going to talk about the history in a few minutes. Does that sound Correct. right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Alright, you guys uh, have a uh, case presentation or a, a STEM a question, more accurately, Sure. and you're going to do this a little bit differently than some of the other students have.
2: Uh, walk me through what you're going to do with this uh, scenario that you've got here. Sure, so this is basically a question that we um, pulled from a question bank. Uh, so it's a multiple choice question, but we thought the stem was appropriate. Uh, it was actually fairly difficult to find questions on dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder. But we found this one and thought it was appropriate. So I think what we'll do is read the question, we'll talk about the different answer choices, see if we can actually define dysthymia or, dyst- or persistent depressive disorder, and then maybe come back to the question, and point out some of the things that would lead us to that diagnosis. some of the things that would point us away from the other options. So I'll I'll read it. It says a 45 year old man is brought to the physician by his wife because of difficulty sleeping and poor appetite for the past four weeks. During this period he has also had persistent sadness and difficulty concentrating on tasks because of which he has been reprimanded at work for for, for poor performance. Over the past three years he has often had such phrases with a maximum such phases with a maximum symptom-free gap of one month between each of them. His behavior is causing a strain in his relationship with his wife and children. His mother died four months ago from breast cancer. Physical exam shows no abnormalities. Mental status exam shows a depressed mood and, and constricted affect. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis in this patient? Now, I'm, I'm not,
0: I don't want to spoil anything here, but the podcast is about persistent depressive disorder. But pretend right. you don't know that, and correct. let's see where we go from here.
2: Right. So what is the correct answer, right? So um, so number A, or letter A, persistent depressive disorder. Uh, B is this adjustment disorder with depressed mood. C is bipolar disorder. D is cyclothymia. E is major depressive disorder. And F is persistent complex bereavement disorder. So obviously we know the right answer, but we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about the history of persistent depressive disorder, and we'll come back to the STEM and see if we can tease out some of the details.
0: That sounds good. Let's talk about the history then. Now, when I look at the history, the first thing I think about is, how in the world did somebody figure out there's something called dysthymia? And, And in our conversations, I think it's fair to say that we kind of said to each other, why is this really different than depression, right? So we're gonna try and figure out the history so that it makes more sense when we're looking at the questions about persistent depressive disorder. And we'll probably abbreviate that to dysthymia for most of the podcast, whatever kind of flows easier for us. Um, and, and I had a tough time finding a good history. I didn't spend as much time doing it, but we went through a number of, of uh, papers, some historical papers, hopefully we get to that. And then the other part of this is, um, usually, usually we try to find some sort of genetic correlation between uh, whatever topic we're talking about, right, what's the biology? Because it's you know, to talk about uh, psychiatry without talking about the biology, I think, is unhelpful. And yet, if you go into the websites like, um, let's say, online Mendelian Inheritance in Man and start looking, using the, the term dysthymia, it, it really just doesn't show up very much. You might find something with uh, protein kinase Mzeta in rats, but that's about it at the moment. There's nothing that really talks about persistent depressive disorder or dysthymia. Really, the research is all about depression and depressive syndromes, and I'm not sure that anything we're looking at really has good clear boundaries. So with that in mind, with my skepticism, and I think yours about there being a true difference between major depressive disorder and dysthymia or persistent depressive disorder, um, talk to me about the history and see if you can help me understand what the difference is.
1: Okay. So we we'll are just kind of start from the beginning. At least its introduction to psychiatry it was about 1844 by a psychiatrist, uh, C.F. Fleming. Um, and then 1877 was when cyclothymia, which is kind of a brother to dysthymia, was introduced. Um, and there was a bunch of development regarding uh, what they call... Uh, sub-threshold symptomatology, kind of like a, a mild case of both bipolar and, and depression. And then it was, dysthymia was kind of forgotten up until the DMS, DSM-3 came out. Um, and that was somewhat controversial because uh, many believed, m- many people believe that low-grade persistent symptoms um, often dating to the childhood, like in dysthymia, um, indicated a personality trait rather than a mood disorder. Um, However, there is data suggesting that uh, viewing dysthymia as a mood disorder is appropriate. We can go through that uh, later. (laughs) We will go through it later, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So uh, DSM-3R added a bunch of chronic specifiers for a major depressive disorder. um, And it was kind of added. There was dysthymia that was added in uh, DSM-3. And then there was chronic... uh, depressive disorder that was also added. So they're kind of separate entities. It wasn't until um, DMS-4 that um, okay, I was, sorry wrong, DSM-5 that these were kind of combined under persistent depressive disorder. um, It's kind of a broad term. Um, And that's kind of where we are today.
0: So So I think um, I found an article that I looked at from Uh, by a guy named UHER, U-H-E-R, from 2014. I think this was around the time that the DSM-5 was published or leading up to that. And he said, and I thought this was interesting, chronic depression and dysthymia were merged into PDD in DSM-5. This new division of depressive disorders gives more weight to duration than to severity of symptoms. DSM-5 defines PDD on a basis of the set of symptoms for dysthymia with the assumption that most people who, or most individuals who meet the full symptoms for MDD also meet criteria for dysthymia. However, because of differences in symptomatic criteria, some individuals with chronic major depressive episodes will not meet the DSM-5 criteria for PDD. I still kind of scratch my head with that you guys are looking at me sort of like, I don't know that I follow that either. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so so I do think that the key part of that is we have these disorders that seem to be different and also seem not to be different. One of the things that I know we talked about was, who was it that came up with dysthymia originally? So you talked about Craplin, I think, uh, who if you go back, he's one of the guys that's uh, a, a, a significant character in the history of... of uh, psychiatry, in part because, if I remember right, he wrote the textbook, right? He was one of the guys that defined schizophrenia early on, I think he was the guy that wrote the textbook, and so whatever he believed kind of got out to other people and they were reading the textbook that he was writing. It was either him or Bleuler, but I think it was Kraepelin, and so, so you have these guys that had a significant impact on the field, and as far as I can tell at least dysthymia was just a more mild version of what uh, Kraepelin was looking at as bipolar disorder, so cyclothymia and depression, and then, uh, I'm sorry, cyclothymia and compared to bipolar disorder and major depressive disorder compared to dysthymia. Now that that mild symptomology has kind of stuck around, but it seems like with the new grouping, maybe symptomology, we can't really count on what used to be DSM symptomology being consistent with persisting, uh, depression
2: symptomology. Does that sound right? Uh, Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of hard to tease out exactly why it was different in the beginning, but I think they were seeing these acute episodes of depression, and then they were also seeing these kind of long-term, and in the paper it described it as like low self-esteem and hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And they're like, maybe these are two separate things. And so I think that's where they were like, oh, this must be dysthymia. But then I guess also in that paper, when they spent more time with those patients, they realized that, okay, these patients are actually having acute episodes. Maybe this is a, a chronic version of what we thought.
0: So, so let me just talk about that very briefly. One of the things that I think we talked about that distinguished major depressive disorder from dysthymia in something like the DSM-IV was that major depressive disorder had these very discrete on and off episodes, right? It started, it stopped, and dysthymia had this um, much less clear on and off, and instead I think a reasonable way of thinking about it is more days than not you have these depressive symptoms, right, Right. and they are persisting, they stick around for a very long time. Um, And then you can even have, what you, what you were alluding to a moment ago was this, uh, what, what was called double depression, where you have this thymia more days than not, that you feel down. But then you have this period of time where every day you feel persistently down. Does that sound right?
2: Yeah, I think so. Okay. And I think in the original it was almost defined as like if it's less than two years, it could be an acute episode, and then it was longer, then it would be a chronic episode. And they realized, okay, maybe that doesn't pan out exactly how we would think.
0: And we're going to talk about those timelines in just a moment. Talk about
2: timelines, right? So, yeah, okay. we're going to go to that.
0: All right. So we have a sense of of this kind of amorphous diagnosis that is like depression, and now we're going to try and sort out a little bit more specifically how it might be the same, how it might be different, and why that might be important. So let's go back up to the case scenario that you guys presented.
2: Sure. Um, so first, actually, I think it would be helpful if we defined what um uh, what persistent depressive disorder actually is now in the dsm all right
0: i'm following you guys on this one right perfect
2: yeah so if we talk about um the specific criteria which there is specific criteria i think before it was more vague and in the dsm-5 they really tried to lay it out so it'll help you give the diagnosis when you see it because i imagine clinically like most things it's much harder to to figure out uh, if it is a chronic version. So as far as the criteria goes, <clears throat> the DSM5 says that in order to meet persistent depressive disorder, you have to have depressed moods most of the day and more days than not for at least two years. So there's there's a the timeline, so it has to be a longer than two year thing, and you have to have at least two of the following six symptoms. So you have to feel depressed, but you also have to have two of these. So poor appetite or overeating, insomnia or hypersomnia, low energy or fatigue, low self-esteem, poor concentration or difficulty making decisions or hopelessness.
0: I want to jump in here for just a moment. And that is to say that these are also very similar to our DSM criteria for major depressive disorder. We've talked about SIGI caps a number of times in our podcasts. And one of the critical aspects here that I think is worth pointing out is not only the timeline, but if you're looking at a stem that has three or two symptoms of depression, and you're looking for that fourth, I'm sorry, if you're looking for that fifth symptom to lock down the criteria for major depressive disorder, and you can't find it, then it, it, this is the clue that dysthymia needs to be something that you're thinking about, right?
2: Exactly. Yep. Okay. And I think, I think these are easier to point out on a checklist like this. In a STEM, it can be more difficult. Yeah. And, I, and so I think if you're starting to see some of these depressive symptoms... Start counting. Start counting, right, and, and yeah. looking for timelines.
0: I think the timeline is maybe the easiest way to initially catch it, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah correct. So uh, I think uh, you can't go without those symptoms for more than two months. Um, there's some additional history about exclusionary criteria like you can't have bipolar disorder and have dysthymia, right? Um, And you can't have substances that are explaining this. In other words, there's not a better explanation for the diagnosis than dysthymia, right?
2: Correct. So yeah, basically you're looking for something that's been longer than two years and you've had symptoms with no less than two months of feeling better essentially or not depressed
0: and then the key aspect of uh, the difference between cyclothymia and dysthymia then is also probably worth pointing
1: out what is that is yeah so cyclothymia is similar similar to dysthymia in regards to the time frames that we mentioned the greater than or equal to two years and without symptoms uh never without symptoms greater than or equal to two months however cyclothymia is defined by cycling periods of hypomanic and depressive symptoms without meeting criteria for either mood state. So you can't meet the criteria for a manic episode and you can't meet the criteria for a depressive episode during that time.
0: I wonder what you call it when none of those meet, but you still have somebody that has, anyway. You know where I'm going, yeah. All right, so why two years? Any idea?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. In one of the uh, papers we were looking at, it said that there really is no, they haven't tested this criteria, which is one of the controversial things about it. So, uh, you know, you wonder where do they get the two years from? Is it just an average that they see or who knows, honestly? So the paper says that we're really not sure why that is. But
0: I think that fit with some of the other things we're looking at as well, right? It's not, a, it's, it's not in the literature in terms of the biological data that we're collecting compared to major depressive disorder. There's not GWAS studies. There's not... I think we even looked at a. We looked at a review, from Matthews Online, something or another. Right. I'm fairly convinced <laughs> that's a paper mill site, right? Yeah. And, uh, it looked like a good article. It looked like <laughs> a yeah. great article. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you're a retraction watcher. You <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how we, we have we mentioned just a few minutes ago the Siggy caps, which a lot of people are familiar with in terms of remembering the criteria for major depressive disorder. And you have a mnemonic here for dysthymia. You want to go through that with me?
1: Yeah, so, so the mnemonic that we, we found um, is he's too sad. So H-E-S, the number two, and S-A-D. Um, the H being hopelessness. Uh, the E being energy loss or fatigue. The S being self-esteem is low. Uh, two being the two years minimum of depressed mood. And you could also throw in the um, two-month criteria as well. Um, the S being sleep is decreased or increased. The A is an epita- appetite is increased or decreased. And D, decision-making and or concentration is impaired. So we kind of simplified it to make it a little easier, uh, a little more um, digestible for mm-hmm. medical students who have to memorize all these mnemonics. Just right. another one to add to your bank. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, it's just, at least it's easier to get the mnemonics. And I think the one thing that's nice about this mnemonic is it really does copy the mnemonic of Siggy uh, caps right. And I think guilt and hopelessness, if I remember correctly, are, are similar criteria and maybe remembering the two mnemonics helps you remember the hopelessness criteria within Siggy uh, caps Sure. Alright, so now that we have a mnemonic we've talked about this uh, history of we still really don't know how dysthymia appeared other than a Kiskel felt like it was important in the 70's maybe when the yep. DSM-3 was coming around. Um, Let's talk about this uh, question, question number one.
2: Yeah, so there's a couple of things in this question uh, that we mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that point us to obvious signs of depression. So this is a 45-year-old man who has difficulty sleeping. There's a poor appetite. Uh, He describes persistent sadness, difficulty concentrating on tasks. All of those things are going to point you in the direction of, okay, this is depression. And then <clears throat> there's some tricks in here. So it says that he's had poor appetite for the for the past four weeks, and so you're thinking, okay, I've got I've got some time frame here. But then farther down, it says that he's also been experiencing some of these other symptoms for over three years, and so that's where we get our our long term duration. So at that point, okay, for three years, could this be a dysthymia, persistent depressant disorder kind of thing? Um, and then. Further in the STEM, it says that maximum symptom-free gap of one month between each th- each of them. So that's your buzzword right there for the STEM. In clinical practice, I imagine it's not that easy to yeah, do. He's a pretty good historian. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, uh, I don't know how I would tell the difference between this and major depressive disorder, right?
2: And I think c- clinically you may not at, at first even, right? It might... Take a little time to mm-hmm. figure that out.
1: But again, like we mentioned last time, if you think in depression the whole time, we do have this time criteria as well. But if you count up the the SIGI caps um, criteria from major depression, we only have four of those. And while we discussed that you need five or more of those, that kind of puts dysthymia higher on your differential as, com- as compared to um, MDD would.
0: So, three years timeline kinds of things. All right, so um, why not an adjustment disorder? I noticed that his mother died four months ago from breast cancer. So why why isn't adjustment disorder a reasonable answer in this, which is the B question, or the B answer?
2: So <clears throat> with adjustment disorder, with depressed mood, here there's no mention of an inciting event. Um, and it does say that, let's see, Oh, so you he said he has, it did mention yeah, that it. Has, it does it has, have the breast yeah. cancer. So that's right. true. Yeah. So so, so, so technically there could be. Yeah, I guess. And, and, and that's we, why it's a kind of so, so question
0: for that. In my mind, it was because of the timeline, right? This is something. There's nothing in here that says his mom died from breast cancer and he started feeling bad after that, right? Mm-hmm, you right. would need that that descriptor of he responded to a difficult situation with a change in mood, right. and we don't see that. What we see is. Three years running, he has this mood state right. that is quite persistent. Right?
1: Yeah, and as far as I know, I believe the to, to 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 identify adjustment disorder, it needs to be within three months of that inciting event. So, considering it was four months, it might kind of
0: that's that's a good point. You have to be within within that window, not yeah. outside that window. Yeah, and and I don't know about this persistent complex bereavement disorder. Is there a reason why? why the uh, loss of his mother wouldn't be that instead.
2: Yeah, that was one of the answer choices from the STEM, but, um, you know, honestly, it could be actually uh, talking about the mother. I think the point of this is, though, and to defend myself from previous about the inciting of it. um, uh, You don't need to defend yourself. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't,
0: I did not. Okay, so so what this says, so just so that everybody knows what's going on here. Um, in the answers that we have here it's been written that there's not an inciting event and what happened i think is that the breast cancer thing kind of got skipped over right, right. and and so what we're doing is on the fly going through these criteria and you guys are still picking this up you don't need to defend yourself you're doing oh, yeah, fine I, I wasn't going to mention no, that at all no, I, was no, just, right. <laughs> I was just throwing out why there were differences between these and
2: i think you're doing a great job with it yeah and i think um, here it says, oh, this was breast cancer. I think if it started at four months, but here it's telling us that it's been going on for the past three years. That's kind since. of what I keep going back to right. as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All
0: right, so so again, I think there were just a couple of key things to, to notice. Less than five symptoms, durations, right, periods of time without symptoms. Yeah. Those timeline uh, issues become very important, which sounds a little bit like one of the things I harped on in our psychopathology
2: lecture, right? right. Timelines, 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 timelines. Right. I think it's important to mention cyclothymia too, because cyclothymia has similar time frames. So if you're seeing that they're in a STEM or in clinical practice or something that people are meeting these time frames over three years, if there was any sign of any manic episode, that's that something you would want to be looking
0: for, yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. All right, um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. I really like the way you guys tackled that, because I think the way you tackled that, uh, quite often we go to the history to tackle some of these Uh, illnesses and why they're unique. In this case, we didn't really find a good history of why dysthymia was around. I think the eschistical paper might've helped us a little bit. Um, But I I think going through the question, talking about those differences is probably the best way to think about this diagnosis. Sure. Let's talk about the epidemiology. Um, I wanna go back to the early 2000s. You guys were busy watching Full House. Correct. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we (laughs) talked about that earlier today. And uh, a guy named uh, Kessler was completing something called the National Comorbidity Survey, where he went around door to door talking to people and doing uh, diagnostic interviews with people and collecting data on prevalence, uh, point prevalence and uh, incidence. I think, of these mental health illnesses. And one of the ones that he did look at was dysthymia. So tell me about how common dysthymia was in about 2000, year 2000, 2005, somewhere in there.
2: Right, so there's a couple of uh, statistics here. So, as far as the epidemiology goes, worldwide, it's estimated that the prevalence of depression, including this persistent depressive disorder that we're talking about here, is approximated at 12 percent. In the United States, uh, it's supposed to be slightly higher and closer to 17 percent, where Persistent Depressive Disorder specifically is at 3%. And I think this is kind of interesting, and I do mention it in the paper as well, that these criteria, you have to take it with a grain of salt because of how they actually do the measurements. And so they say that the numbers do vary significantly depending on how you actually count it.
0: But When you say significantly, is that statistically significant or is that like 3% to like 50%?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I shouldn't say significantly because they think, just say... I think they are statistically
0: significant, right? I think right. I saw some numbers that ranged anywhere from about 3% to 4.5%, something like that. Yeah. That's a big difference, right? That's right. a lot of people difference. Right. Um, I just want to mention right here... Uh, incidence versus prevalence, right? So I think Kessler, when he did the study, he said, have you ever had this? So that would be prevalence. Mm -hmm. And then incidence in the last year would be lower. So I think these prevalence numbers are ever having had, which is closer to that 20% number of people who have had episodes Mm -hmm. of depression, right? And and this ever having had uh, dysthymia, that number is surprisingly low. And yet it seems like um, this is a big deal, right? chronic depression, um, persistent depressive disorder, and dysthymia may have a bigger impact on people's functioning than episodic depression. Talk to me about that.
2: I like that. You both looking at each other. Go ahead. Oh, go go, ahead. Ahead. go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think, and you're asking about
0: so the morbidity associated with uh, dysthymia. I think there's some Versus workplace
2: morbidity, right? Yeah. And and we can either get we can either get to that now or we can get to that so in I, a little I bit, but we can do it right here.
0: Now. Okay, I'm I'm probably off on this then because it says chronic depression is associated with lower income, um, and I thought that's where we were headed next. But let's keep going on the epidemiology, and I'll try and read sure. a little more clearly. How does oh, no, that no, sound? Fine, yeah. So I don't um, mind jumping around if that's what we need to do. More common in females than males. Mm-hmm. And then there's some associations uh, with lower income, but not necessarily with race, ethnicity, education,
2: things along those lines. Yeah, correct. All right. So how do you treat this? Right, so this is a really interesting part about uh, dysthymia in general is the treatment. So one of the things that Cam and I were initially thinking is, okay, if, if they had two different if they name these two different things, major depressive disorder and dys- dysthymia, the treatment must be different, right? Because that would make it significant to have two different conditions. Turns out that the treatment is actually very similar to major depressive disorder. So you still use psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy uh, and they're best used when together. Although um, the studies are interesting on both of these. So psychotherapy is apparently worse than pharmacotherapy. So they say that for persistent depressive disorder, pharmacotherapy is the direction you want to go. Although if that's not working, then you want to implement the uh, psychotherapy as well.
0: And most now is, is I think this is from the uh, Cochrane review. Is that correct?
2: Uh, n- no, actually, uh, the Cochrane review mentioned a little bit about this, but this was from uh, one of the other reviews. One of the other reviews, yeah, right. the literature reviews, and, and so.
0: There, there was some data that I was once told about. I think I read the article. Sometimes I, th- I think memory is a fleeting thing. Sure. And I think what the article said was that generally speaking, if you have mild or moderate depression, there is little difference in outcomes between psychotherapy and pharmaceutical medica- or ph- or pharmacological interventions, right? So mild or moderate depression, you're going to get about the same outcome.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: When you shift to severe depression, it turns out that um, psychotherapies tend to not be very helpful and that pharmacological therapies seem to be more helpful. And in addition to that, when we're working with uh, major depressive disorder, again I want to make that clear, major depressive disorder, um, it appears that having both psychotherapy and medications is generally a better pathway than either alone, right? Correct. So, we've talked about um, dysthymia in terms of categorizing it with persistent depression, which categorizes it more of a time-related illness rather than a severity-related illness. We talked about dysthymia when it was originally um, looked at as being a lesser version of bipolar disorder by Kraepelin, right, Uh, the the depressive disorders or um, bipolar disorders for dysthymia and cyclophymia. And yet, even though there's a lot of literature that we looked at, and I looked at some of this, about severity being less with dysthymia, There was also some literature that suggested the outcomes are worse with dysthymia. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, that was interesting. So we did find that Jeremy mentioned earlier, it's like, okay, if MDD and um, dysthymia are treated the same, so like what's the big deal there, right? I mean, like if there's no point in differentiating the two if there's no big deal. But we found that the outcomes in one study um, suggest that persistent depressive disorder um, is independently associated with greater severity of depression, anxiety, somatic symptoms, and believe we, we've also found that suicidality is, or suicide is at higher rates with people with persistent depressive disorder.
0: And I'm gonna jump in there because that's that's different than some of the things we read which said that uh, suicidality didn't seem to be a key aspect of dysthymia, right? Did you guys remember right. reading something one was like? Yeah. I think our data is really inconsistent here. Yes. Although, <clears throat> persistent depressive disorder may be a different animal than what was previously viewed as simply dysthymia. But, but go ahead.
2: I was, I was going to make a comment real fast. I, I think that's a good point. I think when they combined uh, dysthymia and chronic major depressive disorder under the umbrella term persistent depressive disorder, they combined a, a serious thing with more of a mild thing. And so I think that's what complicates the disease now, is trying to figure out... Because they will say dysthymia is a more milder form. Usually, they don't have the suicidal ideations. But yeah, persistent
0: depressive disorder
2: does. Does, and it
0: looks like that's coming from the persistent depression. Right. So, so I I think this gets back to the idea that they married two things based on timelines, and not necessarily on symptom clusters as much. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even though I, I don't know, there's a lot of them yeah. on that too. Again, what is the difference between these two illnesses?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not much. <Yeah. laughs> we're still right, trying so, to figure that out.
0: <laughs> so I interrupted you. You talked about the severity over ten years. I think there were some other things that we tried to do to figure out. Okay, well, how do we tell these two conditions apart? And we've talked about it. I think on the most important level, which is how do you answer the question on the test, right? right. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're, uh, let's say that you're. Uh, Kent Roundy that you are sitting in an office with somebody and trying to figure out how do I maybe consider this illness in a way that's most accurate, so that maybe the patient gets the best prognostic information and the best treatment available. And, and maybe there's some subtleties in that, right? How do I maybe sort this out when it seems like I'm not sure about whether they have four or five symptoms? Are there some like risk factors or some things that kind of maybe lean me one way or the other?
2: Honestly I think that's a good question. I think clinically this is gonna be really hard and I think you have to be aware of the disorder and know that it exists and not just jump to this is a major depressive episode and if you're seeing patients especially like on an inpatient setting or something and it's they've been having a good week or a good two weeks and a good month, it's like okay, maybe this is maybe they've recovered, right? Maybe the medication's working. But I think it's important to really get the history there and understand the disease because what we've learned is that these chronic forms where they come off of it and into it are actually have worse outcomes. So the last thing you want to do is send them home and have them have a suicidal ideation or something. Okay.
0: Now you also have some things that you have a chart here, right, that has some of this information that maybe helps distinguish that. So you're talking about, hey, be thinking about this. Right. And you're also think you're also saying something I think is very important, which is be aware that if you have episodic symptoms, that might mean that the first medication you tried really wasn't helping, right? right. You might have to find a second or third until you have somebody that has less frequent episodic symptom or or less op- often chronic symptoms with gaps, right? So I know that sounds odd, because we've talked about episodic being major depressive disorder, and yet even the chronicity of, of uh, dysthymia and persistent depressive disorder still has some breaks and gaps, right? right, right. So, so I think that's the idea that we have to think about.
2: Sure.
0: So, so you have a chart here which says features of chronic depression as opposed to non-chronic major depressive disorder, mm-hmm. uh, so episodic depressive episodes. And I think one of the questions I asked is, uh, this was from a review article you guys were looking at and mm. i said how good is the data behind this sure
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs>
0: all right so anyway this author this author said what? what what are the differences between depression w- when you're not looking at the timeline criterias criterion and the things that we've already talked about are there some other hints
1: yeah so other other uh, features of uh, chronic depression disorders, like in PDD. Um, uh, uh, more often than not, these, these patients have, well, maybe that was incorrect, I guess. Commonly, these patients will have a greater childhood adversity and maltreatment history. Um,
0: so this, this symptom reminds me of the podcast we did on uh, vancyclidine, PCP. Patients who come into the emergency room taking uh, PCP have hypertension.
2: You guys mm-hmm. all know that, right? Mm-hmm. Correct.
0: And do you know what the hypertension is? Isn't
2: it like one thirty? Yeah, it's, <laughs> <pretty> yeah. <low. laughs> right. it's like
0: one thirty-three over, you know, right. eighty-eight, right? Right. So, <clears throat> I think this is one of those things where there's still aces, and I think you guys may or may not know what aces are—adverse mm-hmm. childhood yeah. events, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there are more aces <laughs> in dysthymia, but that might be like saying there's seven in depression and eight in in dysthymia. So I don't know. Again, I. Yes, and is it helpful clinically? Keep going right.
1: <coughs> um, it's also shown that um, people with PDD have high rates of depression um, in relatives. Uh, so there's a kind of a familial aspect to it. Um, and they have an earlier onset of depressive symptoms, so often in the childhood or, or adolescence. you can be seen there as well.
0: Do you know who else has... This is one of those really totally unfair pimp questions. (laughs) Uh, Do you know who else has earlier onset of... uh, Or has early onset depressive symptoms? So in adolescence or childhood, what other diagnosis?
2: How about bipolar disorder?
0: Yes. Very, very nicely done.
2: Good job. That was a stab in the dark.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I think you... uh, I think you had some intuition about it. <laughs> yeah. right?
1: So uh, also concurrently patients with these uh, chronic depressive symptoms or disorders have greater comorbidity with psychiatric disorders. They have a create greater comorbidity with somatic disorders as we kind of discussed earlier. Um, greater neuroticism and lower extraversion, uh, higher frequency of depressotypic cognitions, such as dysfunctional attitudes and rumination, uh, more avoidant, submissive, and hostile interpersonal styles, uh, higher frequency of alexithymia, um, which... And what is alexithymia? I'm going to...
0: Man, I was going to try and trip you up, and you're ready for it, aren't you? No, I'm not
1: ready for this one. I'm going to maybe de- refer to you or defer to you. I thought
0: alexithymia you. is where you, don't, uh, or you either don't feel or don't recognize your mood state very well, and I don't remember which. Okay.
1: I think I should have Googled that one before this. Me too. <laughs> uh, they have smaller social networks, uh, less social support, and greater functional impairment. Um, and then, predictively, they are symptomatic for greater proportion of the time, which is, goes with the chronicity of this. Uh, they have recurrent episodes more likely to be chronic, um, great fun- greater functional impairment, uh, higher suicide rates, and higher frequency of treatment approaches in the history.
0: In other words, nothing's worked very well. We keep trying. Right. Okay. One of the things that I think this also talks about when you're talking, so the antecedent kinds of risk factors, I thought made some sort of sense. The concurrent risk factors seem to make some sort of sense to me in terms of why why in the past, dysthymia was looked at more like a personality disorder. Because if you look at a lot of these uh, neuroticism, uh, ch- low extroversion, which means um, I'm not an extrovert, right? Yeah. That's what it would mean. Um, comorbidity with other disorders, somatization. All of these things strike me like somebody that has a personality disorder, right? So, so I can kind of see where the history and some of these concurrent symptoms seem to come together and why there might have been more overlap in the past before a kiss kind of separated these out. Mm-hmm. And then predictive symptoms I think you have here. Yeah, did you already do those. I did. I read those last, okay. yeah. Sorry, I was uh, clearly zoning out thinking about Chinese food. <laughs> it happens to me sometimes. Um, so moving forward, where do we go from here? What happens next
2: with this disorder? So that's a good question. In most of the literature, it says that there's the, there still needs to be a lot of research on it, right? And, mm-hmm. and mainly that is if, if it is if it does have a worse prognosis than major depressive disorder, then what is the way we do the treatment, and I think that's, I think that's an important focus because right now the treatment hasn't been as effective, and most of the things say that it is not effective, um, which is kind of interesting, which we can talk a little bit more about. Um, okay, so one of the one of the studies was saying that psychotherapy, as mentioned multiple times, is not very effective uh, for this persistent depressive disorder. And, and people are trying to figure out why that is. But apparently, uh, they say that you need about 18 uh, sessions to be effective. Most people aren't getting 18 sessions. They quit. They quit, right? Mm-hmm. So that could be the problem with that. Um, also, um, is there just, since it is a long-term kind of thing, is there just non-compliance, right, like, like the quitting? Um, is there delayed treatment from these patients? This is this is almost part of their lifestyle. They're used to it. Are they delaying treatment because
0: so they don't get there? The illness becomes entrenched. It's exactly. not as reversible. Sort of like kidney disease. Right. Okay. I don't. By the way, I don't know that we have good answers that that's right. the case. Yeah. This is a speculative
2: speculation, thing. of course. Yeah. Um. And then yeah, just a, a low motivation. I think they've been living with this for a while and and the motivations tricky, and these were some of the things that the paper brought up as, again, speculations about why. One of the other things I thought was quite interesting is in, in another one of the articles, it's talking about uh, using uh, pharmacotherapy for treatment, and the, they noticed that when compared to the patients who did not receive or who did not have persistent depressive disorder, that when they gave the, the patients SSRIs or TCAs, that their symptoms were actually decreased. And so it looked like it was helping, but they noticed that the negative impacts on dysthymia did not decrease.
0: So they still had the difficulties getting to work, This still had the problems with motivation, there was still somatization, there was still
2: anxiety, those kinds of things? Correct, yeah. Okay. But their day-to-day, they seemed happier or they seemed more lively. But those long-term effects weren't there. I thought that was interesting. They they didn't go away. The long-term. Problems yeah, they didn't were. go away. Yeah. Okay. What interesting.
0: What else? Where else do we go here? What, what else do we need to know about dysthymia? Cameron, I'm I like just... this look on your face. It's like I have no idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> there's uh, a lot of people are just trying to figure that out still. It seems like well, we you kind of mentioned earlier that. Um, persistent depressive disorder kind of lumped in dysthymia and chronic major depressive disorder two seemingly like different um, disorders on the spectrum of severity like dysthymia was considered mm-hmm. mild and major depressed chronic major depressive disorder is pretty severe so I was reading an article that um, I'm not sure if it was a psychiatrist or just a researcher but he was proposing that we kind of um, start delineating these Two kind of disorders based on, uh, rather than the length of time, you also add the severity of um, the depression and like the outcomes. So, at the end of the day, it might be taking this and splitting it back apart and trying to figure out if we can find different metrics to measure the severity on, and then base those, base that classification on that um, severity. So. Yeah.
0: I think there's something called uh, RDoC, Research Something Criteria. Um, And the idea is that the way you define the condition drives the grants and the research that's done on the condition. And so there might be criteria that aren't used clinically that are used in research to help better define how we tackle those problems. And and I think that makes a lot of sense that we have Mm -hmm. a different set of criteria to maybe consider that these are different conditions. One of the things that stuck out to me, so um, I really want us to have biological underpinnings for our conditions. I don't think we are a valid medical science or a medical field if we're not actively pursuing the science and the biology behind these conditions, right? And if there's not a biology behind them, then it might not fit within our purview so much, right? We'll, We'll let, um, the rheumatologists deal with that. Just kidding, that's a joke. Um, on, a, on a very serious level though, I I was l- I looked all over for an article that talked about genome-wide association studies that address um, dysthymia. And I just don't know that there's enough dysthymia in the various GWAS to be able to look at that data. I just don't know if it's not an interesting topic. I don't know if the types of um, tests or reporting is uh, sensitive enough for us to actually say we have patients in the, in the populations that we have the genetic uh, information from to be able to make that case, right? I don't know the answer to that. But in contrast to that, if you look at uh, genome-wide association studies for depression, there's, uh, what, a couple hundred, there's a hundred-ish different variants, uh, genetic, um, uh, not SNPs, but, genes and changes in the genome that may confer some sort of risk for depression, mostly in the frontal lobes maybe. And that's a, that's a huge number. So if we're talking about just depression, and we're talking about 100 genes that drive what we have collapsed into one illness, it might be that we simply saw something a little bit different with this or chronic depression. Uh, that we now call persistent depressive disorder. And that really, all we're doing is, is still looking at the same couple hundred, you know, roughly hundred genes that we've identified to this point. And as we figure that out more clearly, I hope that we move from major depressive disorder to um, cry to um, depressive syndrome. Right? I think there's a gene that I saw was called CRY2, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> who came up with that? Appropriate. name appropriate. <laughs> yeah. seems uh, appropriate to me. So, so I guess in my mind, this is my first take home, and that is that I'm not sure that I see a meaningful distinction between uh, major depressive disorder and dysthymia and persistent depressive disorder. Um, there does seem to be some curious nature about the persistence of each of those, and the chronicity of each of those, uh, or the periodicity of each of those that might have meaning that doesn't yet mean anything to us in terms of treatment. Maybe it will eventually. So that's my take home. I hope that we have more information in the near future that makes this distinction that we have meaningful. So I've heard the phrase before, a distinction without, distinction without difference. And I don't know that we came to that conclusion because there are some differences in treatment outcomes, it seems like. And maybe if dysthymia is separated out from chronic depression, there might be some distinction with difference in terms of risk with suicidality. Dysthymia itself may not be so dangerous. Right. So so that's my take home. What's your take home, Jeremy?
2: Honestly, I think some of the points that you guys have already made would be my take homes. I think the biological uh, effort is an important one. It seems like that's the general pattern of medicine, that we define things clinically, and then we realize the genes, and then realize we didn't have that right to begin with. Or we refine it. Or we refine it, right? So dysthymia may have the same genes as major depressive disorder, and then we realize, okay, maybe this is the same disease. And so who knows? I think that would be interesting to find out. Um, Or maybe
0: major depressive disorder gets lost completely, right? Right. It goes away. The right. only thing that's major depressive disorder is what we can't define genetically.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's some <laughs> philosophy for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just call it something until we can find some genes okay. for it.
0: And then we call it Cri2 Syndrome, Depression, Depressive Syndrome, oh, yeah. or something. Like
2: that. Right. But yeah, I think those are good takeaways, both of you. So.
0: Okay. I'm going to ask one other question that I don't normally ask uh, my students. Um, What did you take away from the assignment that wasn't related to uh, dysthymia?
1: I I think it's just important to... It it just emphasized the importance to me of being able to kind of sift through literature and find uh, valuable articles um, for clinical practice or just, you know, pure curiosity. And then you you can dive into the histories of things and kind of find a, a reason Um, while they're named, why they're named, what they are, how they got classified, how they are, and it really helps you understand the disease um, as a whole. And I think that's important as a physician moving forward that you need to be able to go through the literature and kind of uh, keep up to date on things. And and if you get confused by something, don't be afraid to go back and kind of figure out where it all started as well.
2: Yeah, are you going to add anything to that, Jeremy, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think, like Cameron said, I think the history actually is an important topic. We talked about that quite a bit beforehand, and it seems like some of the podcasts emphasize a lot of the history, and that you you learn all these terms in medical school, and dysthymia, and persistent depressive disorder, and cyclothymia, and they start blending together, and some are from DSM-4 and 5, and I think when you tease those out and figure out which came from what, it helps you better understand the path of this clinical syndrome. I
0: think, as medical students, um, before this podcast, I'm guessing that you would have said, oh, well, yeah, there's dysthymia, and there's major depressive disorder, there's persistent depressive disorder, and major depressive disorder, and clearly there's a reason why those two exist, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody knows something. Now that you've read some of the articles, Mm. has that changed your feelings about, well, somebody clearly knows something? (laughs)
2: i don't know (laughs) it doesn't seem like it (laughs) i I honestly think that's one of my favorite things about medicine is one of my favorite answers is i do not know right and i i like hearing faculty say that um and people who you look up to and you figure have all the answers it's like no one really knows why this happens and it seems like we're trying to figure out major depressive disorder it's a very complex disease and is there different versions? Is there not? And before we were discussing, you know, was this a was this a dissertation of yeah, some sort yeah. of somebody? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like I need to I need to figure out something to do a dissertation on. Maybe there's a different version of major depressive disorder, but yeah. turns out that wasn't the case. They were actually concerned that they were missing something, and maybe they were, maybe they weren't.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, so, so one of the things I like very much about this podcast is when I have a podcast. Another thing I should say when I have a podcast where. Students come to me and say, hey, you know, I was confused about this before, and I really wanted to sort out the difference in these things. And now I get why I had confusion. Mm -hmm. Right? I kind of like that, too. That's not the worst outcome for a podcast. What I like is that the two of you said, okay, listen, you have to pass the test. And here's the way to pass the test. And what we also need to do is care about our patients and try and figure out you know do we know what we need to know to be able to be the best physicians available to this person and the answer is probably not but as far as I can tell nobody else does we saw a lot of literature published we saw things like double depression an article published in 1982 which talked about this episodic major depressive disorder that was on top of dysthymic disorder, right? You may see something like that show up on an exam. Mm -hmm. I hope not because I feel like that's an outdated kind of concept. Um, And then we saw articles all the way up until about, I don't know, 2008, 2009. But then it kind of disappeared. I felt like we didn't see hot research on the topic, right? Correct. I don't know if you've had the same experience.
2: Right. Yeah, there were a few reviews that were recent, but they were summarizing some older material. And that made it hard to figure out what was worthwhile and what wasn't because they're using some of the older lingo from the DSM. And like we talked about before, they say dysthymia is more mild. There's no suicidal ideation, but persistent depressive disorder is more severe and there is suicidal ideation. Now we call them the same thing. So that was a little bit confusing. <laughs>
0: and disheartening for me, Yeah, right? right? I want there to be more continuity in, in the way that we're understanding the illnesses. Uh, other thoughts about that idea that y- you did a dive into the literature and walked away feeling like you have better mastery of it, even though there's not good answers? Any thoughts or comments on that? Because I think this podcast lends itself to that.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I think I, I understand this topic better. Um, I, I understand where they're coming from. I was confused before about what dysthymia was, and I'm still somewhat confused about dysthymia, (laughs) but I think I understand it more now. You have at least the criteria down to be able to answer the question, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's the biggest part as far as a medical student's concerned is is getting the question right when it presents itself. And I think the
0: next question is how do you use the literature in the future when you, let me say it for me rather than throw it out for you, there are times when I feel very confused by a topic and then I finally do a dive in the literature. And all of a sudden I have these aha moments where it becomes much clearer. And sometimes I have these aha moments where I go, ah, no wonder it was confusing, right? Okay. And I think that was this in some ways. Sure. I want to give you guys the last word on this. I've, I've already talked too much. Anything else you'd like to add or your final take-home thoughts on this topic, Cameron? Cameron?
1: Well, I think I've kind of my thoughts are all are, are all gone they're all put into this podcast so yeah. all right. I don't have much
0: so. last question for you then you were a little bit worried about having your voice on a podcast yes and that's not uncommon for my students to be overwhelmed or terrified if you were to give some advice to anybody that might listen to this podcast in the future, any student that might be preparing their own podcast what are your thoughts about did you need to be nervous for it?
1: No, you don't need to be nervous for it. You kind of, I was nervous at the beginning. I was talking a little fast and stuff. But um, Dr. Roundy and having a good partner, Jeremy, here, he kind of relaxed a little bit and turns into more of a conversation than it does to, like, what you would expect, like a speech or, like, a public um, presentation. So, yeah. It's, I think it's it, different, though. Yeah, it's not its not as bad as I expected. So
0: Glad to hear yeah. that. Very, very <laughs> glad to hear that all right Jeremy your last thoughts
2: oh nice I was going to build off of Cameron a little bit I think you're used to medical students are used to preparing something where they can where they can answer and and sometimes read what they prepared and and Cameron and I were talking about this before and preparing for a podcast I think one of the best ways to do it is to just understand the literature and understand the disease and then when you get asked questions or when interesting things come up because sometimes you might take a route that you didn't think you were gonna go down, but you've read some of the literature and so you know how to answer some of those questions. And so I think that's helpful, just just understanding the disease itself. As far as the last word for me goes, um, I don't have much as well as Cameron. I think it's important to <clears throat> do just a little summary of dyssymia, that it's important that, to be able to recognize it in a STEM and in clinical practice, to look for timelines, to look for mania, if it's a long-term thing and there's, it's episodic, uh, two two months is the time you're looking for with without symptoms of depression, then choose that choose that choice on the test. If if it's a question that asks what is the treatment for this, then good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they will. Yeah, I, I don't think they will either. But, but,
0: I, I, I can't resist. I'm going to ask you another question. Um, sure. You you mentioned, get a sense of the literature and, and worry less about having a presentation, I think is what I heard you say. Correct. Some students, their favorite part about the podcast is going to the rabbit hole. Sure. And finding just kind of what's interesting about the podcast and then talking about it. Did you have that experience at all with this podcast?
2: I think so. I think when we started, we didn't know what direction we were going to go. Were we going to compare it to something? Were we just going to talk about the the course of it in a patient or something and I think as we started figuring out and learning more about the disease we learned that we wanted to figure out what made it different mm-hmm. why do why is this even a diagnosis what's so important about it? especially when we were learning about the treatment and that the treatment you basically treat it the same way as major depressive disorder mm-hmm. like well what is the what is the purpose and then we learned about the prognosis and so that kind of tied it together for us I think that's a great way of thinking about it.
0: it. One of the other things I would add on to that is I'm 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 always surprised how when I go down the same pathway, I'm going to read about, say, dysthymia, or whatever the topic is, I've noticed that the students and I almost inevitably came come to the same discussion about the information we've found. And it's not necessarily because we've uh, found the same articles, but generally speaking, the discussion about a topic always goes the same way. It always, we always build into the same routine or the same kind of neural grooves as one of my philosophy professors once said, he'd mm-hmm. worn uh, grooves in his neurons based on something that somebody had written. And, uh, so I, I think I would add to what maybe Cameron said with the, the conversation flows, I would add to what Jeremy said with. Just know the information and be able to kind of talk about it. And I would say, interestingly enough, the way that the most information is published on these topics that we pick up, we end up going down this pathway that's very similar. And it's not like you have to find the right answer, which I think is different than a lot of different presentations that you have.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Instead, it's find the information and interpret it and figure out what it means to you and then talk about it. Guys, I really appreciate what you did on this podcast. I think this is a tremendous podcast that was helpful to me, and I appreciate the time that you spent on it. And on that note, team out. Team Team out. out.